This is Sports in the 90s with your hosts, Dave Smith and Carlos Vega. I break bread with the Hennessy one. Welcome to another episode of Sports in the 90s, a 90s sports history podcast covering everything in the world of sports from January 1st, 1990 until December 31st, 1999. My name is Dave Smith, and with me is my co-host, Carlos Vega. This podcast is a narrative and conversational podcast in one. Every episode, I will be telling a different story. Carlos may know bits and pieces of the story, but we'll be hearing it the way I presented for the first time, along with the listeners, so his reactions will be genuine. Carlos, what's up, man? What is up, my brother? Doing good. Doing all right? Yeah, you know, weather could be better here, but it's Chicago in April, yeah. so what are you going to do? Let's expect. Wait five minutes, brother. Yeah, I know, I know. I mean, I went on a bike ride last week, so that was pretty cool. Yeah. I, uh, I rode to the Allstate Arena and back for the first time, just uh, directed there and back. So that's a pretty good route. Yeah, stomping grounds. Yeah, because I, I like going to Wolves games on a whim, but I just don't feel like paying $15 to park every time. I so I was you. like, well, I can, I'm close enough to where I can ride my bike there, but let me figure out the best route. First of all, Google Maps has a new bike taken Mannheim Road. Don't do that, folks. Mm, Not no, a good folks. idea. Nope. Car, 50 miles an hour, cars are coming in out of O'Hare and the Kennedy. Not a good idea. No, you're going to want to go around, take the take side streets, take sidewalks, take uh, Irving the River, and then go around the Higgins, and then you're, you're there. Yeah. So. Well, the more scenic route of, of, as well. Yeah, it is right. It's more scenic. Like I said, you're kind of you're cutting through, and it's the path of least resistance, and it's the safest route. But yeah, man, uh, other than that, everything's good. Good. Yeah. Good on all fronts. Yeah, I mean, the first episode was a success. I'm very happy with the way it turned out. So thanks again for uh, beginning this journey with me and a lot of good buzz, a lot of good feedback. A lot of people are liking it. So I'm really excited about going forward. Dude, it's going to, I can't wait to hear it because it's so funny. The, uh, just the way we ended the last episode, it's like, man, uh, I can't wait to hear more stories, bro. Mike Tyson, are you kidding? Is Is that what we're talking about today? Yes, in this episode, we're going to be talking about the Mike Tyson-Buster Douglas fight, which saw Mike Tyson, a 42-1 to favorite, lose for the first time in his professional career. We're going to be talking about the upbringings of James Buster Douglas and Mike Tyson, their professional bouts leading up to the match, the fight itself, and the ensuing aftermath of an outcome that no one expected. The two men came from completely different backgrounds. Mike Tyson was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, got into a lot of trouble when he was young, versus James Buster Douglas, whose father was a professional boxer, was raised in the college town of Columbus, Ohio, and was a multi-sport athlete. Our story begins in New York City in 1977, specifically the Brownsville area of Brooklyn. Mike, hanging out with the wrong crowd, got himself arrested a lot. By the time he was 13, he was already arrested 38 times. Mike had been arrested enough times to be sent to Spofford Juvenile Detention Center. At Spofford, Mike and the boys were shown a movie. The movie was called The Greatest. Any idea on what the movie is about? Or who, rather? The Greatest? I mean, 
Muhammad Ali. Yeah, Muhammad Ali. Released in 1977, The Greatest is a movie about Muhammad Ali starring Muhammad Ali as Muhammad Ali. I have not seen this movie. Have you? Uh, I haven't, no. I'm not familiar. After the movie was over, Ali appeared and spoke to the boys, and it was inspirational, as Mike would recall years later. Yeah, dude, I mean, come on, man. Here's what Mike had to say about it. I had no idea what I was doing with my life, but I knew I wanted to be like him. Right then, I decided I wanted to be great. So Mike knew then and there he wanted to be a boxer after seeing Muhammad Ali speak. Meanwhile, Buster Douglas, who is almost six years older than Mike, was introduced to boxing by his father, William Dynamite Douglas, a professional boxer who had compiled a 42-16-1 and record with 32 of those wins being knockouts. Besides from being trained at his father's gym, Buster Douglas also played football and basketball in high school, leading Lyndon McKinley High to a Class AAA state basketball championship. After high school, Douglas would play basketball at Coffeyville Community College in Kansas. He also played basketball at Sinclair Community College from 1979 to 1980 in Dayton, Ohio, before attending Mercyhurst University on a basketball scholarship. That didn't work out for him, but he ended up moving back to Columbus to focus on boxing. Meanwhile, Mike was getting into more trouble, so much so that he would spend more time in juvenile detention. He would end up at the Tryon School for Boys in upstate New York. There he would meet a guy named Bobby Stewart, a tough Irish guy who had been a professional boxer and would train boys at Tryon how to box. When Mike found out about this, he was eager to learn. Bobby Stewart trained Mike at Tryon and recognized his talent. It was then that Bobby Stewart introduced Mike to Customato, a legendary boxing trainer who trained two champions. Floyd Patterson, and Jose Torres. After those fighters' careers ended, Customato lived in relative obscurity in Catskill, New York. Cus had his own boxing gym and was notorious around the boxing world for his use of psychology and training, as well as the peekaboo style of boxing, which involves covering yourself with your hands up, constantly moving your head, and hitting your opponent with an element of surprise. When Mike first arrived to the Catskill Boxing Club, he was eager to impress Cuss. It only took two rounds of sparring with Bobby Stewart for Cuss to see what he needed to see. When Mike and Bobby left the ring, Cuss told Bobby, that's the heavyweight champion of the world. Now keep in mind, Mike is only 13 at this point, but Customato knew that Mike Tyson was going to be heavyweight champion of the world. He was convinced of it. Mike Tyson is the boxer Cuss had been looking for. Customato had been an outcast from the mainstream boxing world for years because he refused to let his fighters be bought and sold by the IBF, which had a long history of blatant corruption and mob influence. Customato was an honest man who insisted on conducting his business that way. So after living in relative obscurity in upstate New York, Cuss was handed a gift in the form of a shy, chubby kid with a lisp and a checkered past. Cus became more than his trainer. He became a father to Mike. When he was released from juvie, he was adopted by Cus and his longtime companion, Camille Ward, who lived in a big Victorian house on 10 acres that Mike also lived in, along with the other boxers that Cus was training. So I mentioned that Mike saw Muhammad Ali speak, right, when he was in juvie? Yeah. Okay, well... 
In October of 1980, thanks to Cuss, Mike got a chance to speak with Ali personally. Did you know that? I did hear that he like had met him as a kid, and that was the yeah. influences he ever had. You know, right? So yeah, he first made him believe. Right, he first saw him in Juvie, but then so a few years later, because Cuss is friends with Ali, they they go way back, right? So Mike and Cuss went up to Albany to watch the. Ali Larry Holmes fight on closed circuit television. See, you see, kids, before the days of pay per view and in home satellite dishes, special sports events would only be shown in certain places that were set up to carry the broadcast. Say, even satellite dishes in people's homes were a rarity, even back in the 90s. Say, Carlos, did you know, ever know anyone that owned a satellite dish back then? That had a 90s? satellite dish back then? Yeah. Um, not really. Right? Uh, I think. Yeah, I think I had a, a one friend that did, but I mean, dude, they were massive though. Right? You yeah. Like they were eyesores. Nobody wanted a satellite dish in their yard. Are you kidding? Right. It's like, it's like uh, you know, and then your neighbors, are, you know, aren't going to have it. So it's you know, that's part of the problem with those with those dishes for a long time. Is that right? They were like ten feet tall. You had to have like massive. You had, almost half of your backyard had to be free and open. It, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it silly. Like, yeah, so they they were yeah. even rare back then. Um, yeah. yeah, that's uh, pretty pretty awesome that he was there for that fight. The, yeah, uh, the Holmes Larry Holmes fight, or well, at least. Yeah. So Ali loses to Holmes, and after watching Ali lose to Larry Holmes, it was a long drive back to Catskill because Cus was pissed that Ali lost. Cus and Ali had been friends for many years. The next morning, Ali's aide Gene Kilroy put Ali on the phone with Cus. Here's what Cuss had to say on the phone to Ali. How did you let that bum beat you? He's a bum, Muhammad. He's a bum. No, no, he's a bum. Don't tell me that. He's a bum. Why did you let that bum hit you like that? <laughs> then Cuss does something. He does a head trip on Mike. He says, I have a young black kid with me. He's just a boy, but he's going to be heavyweight champion of the world. His name is Mike Tyson. Talk to him for me, please, Muhammad. I want you to tell him to listen to me. So Cuss hands the phone over to Mike, and Mike says, uh, you know, I'm sorry for what happened to you. And Ali replies, I was sick. I took some medicine, and it made me weak, and that's how Holmes beat me. I'm going to get well and come back and beat Holmes. Sure. So then Mike, Mike replies back. Mike says, don't worry, champ. When I get big, I'm going to get him for you. <laughs> that's awesome. Right? That's awesome. As fate turns out, Mike did beat Larry Holmes less than eight years later to retain his heavyweight championship. So both yeah. Cuss and Mike's predictions were absolutely right. That's amazing. Right. Now, Mike uh, had a very impressive amateur career, winning gold medals at the 1981 and 1982 Junior Olympic Games. In 1984, he won the Golden Gloves competition, but he failed to make the 1984 U.S. Olympic boxing team losing to Henry Tillman in the finals. Tillman would then go on to win gold at the 1984 Olympics in Los Angeles, California. Did you did you see that that fight in particular? I did not uh... see that fight. I couldn't find that fight, but I did get to watch the semifinals of that Olympic uh -huh. trials where Mike defeated yeah. Henry Milligan. Now, the semifinal yeah. match was covered by a legendary boxing announcer. Can you take a take a guess who comes to mind first? Uh I mean, I mean uh, well, who was doing this? Announcer all... is forever tied to Muhammad Ali because of their interviews. 
Oh, uh, Cosell, really? Howard Cosell, a man who's often imitated but yeah. rarely duplicated. Howard Cosell <laughs> was nice. interviewing Mike in Customato, and Cosell in Cusco back years. Yeah. So when asked about Mike's ability, what did Cus tell his old friend Howard Cosell? That Mike was going to be heavyweight champion of the world. Of course. Yeah, it was really cool, like watching Cosell interview Mike Tyson, kind of like a passing of the torch moment in boxing history, you know? Sure. Yeah, I mean, that's, it doesn't get any bigger than that as far as sports broadcasters go, right? So. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Howard Cosell was like the Forrest Gump of the sports world in the 50s through the 80s, but instead of a lovable idiot, you have a braggadocious broadcaster. He was, yeah, I mean, but people, you know, he was there for people in like really oh, yeah, sporting sure. events, you know, like when John Hunnam was shot, right? Like that, he, he was, was the, the one that one reported report yep. that. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so, like, you know, people have such memories tied to his voice mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, left just an incredible impact on yeah. and broadcasting. Right. And Cosell was one of the few people to support Muhammad Ali when he decided to be a conscientious uh, objector during the Vietnam War. And not many, totally. a lot of people were against Ali, but Howard Cosell was in support of his decision. That is bad. That. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So Mike's. So yeah, where? Uh, yeah. Yeah, Mike's first professional fight was on March sixth, nineteen eighty five, at the Plaza Convention Center in Albany, New York. Tyson defeated Hector Mercedes in the first round by technical knockout. Mike would go on to win his next ten fights, all by knockout or TKO. No fights going more than four rounds. <laughs> yeah. So. so uh... In preparation for this episode, I, I did watch some old fights, of course, because I just it got me super hyped. Oh yeah, and and you're right, man. Like you could watch all of his first t- twenty fights in like I don't know half an hour. Right. Like it was awesome to just watch these highlights over and over again because he was an absolute machine in the ring, and there was nobody like him at the time when he was just coming up because they were just they weren't training like he was from that early age like his body looked completely different than the other heavyweights and they were like who is it took the world by storm yeah as absolutely yeah for sure but i'm sorry i, I digress no Continue, no for sure yeah that's no that's like the feel of like how tyson was that because trained ferocious dude yeah he trained him purposely to be that way to intimidate your opponents just by giving this aura of intimidation the other thing you mean the black trunks right so the no like socks, dude. the no socks and just the, yeah so his opponents were fearing him even before the bell rang on november 4th 1985 customato passed away at the age of 77 needless to say mike was devastated mike had not only lost a trainer and a manager he lost a father mike never knew his real father and when mike started training with cuss cuss and camille adopted him Mike credits Cuss for saving his life, but Mike, in a way, saved Cuss's life. When Mike came into Cuss's life, it gave him something to live for. He put everything he had into making Mike a champion, physically, mentally, and emotionally. Mike wouldn't be where he is today without him, and without Mike, Customato would have just been remembered by boxing historians and old-school boxing fans. Mike had a fight less than two weeks after Cuss's death, and he was unsure if he should fight so soon, but Mike would soon realize that Cuss would want him to continue fighting 
and keep focused on winning the heavyweight championship. On November 13th, he knocked out Eddie Richardson in the first round. He would have three more fights that year for a total of 13 fights in 1985, all victories by knockout or TKO. 1986 would be the year where everything changes for Mike. It would also be a busy year for Tyson, who fought 12 bouts in nine months. 12 fights in nine months. Now, that's pretty rare today yeah. for a professional boxer to have 12 fights in a year, let alone nine months' time, you know? Seriously. And that's, I mean, you're basically boxing once a month, sometimes twice a month. Like, yeah. It's, <laughs> that's, ooh, that is Once every insane. three weeks, it's crazy. These guys take like two to three months now to train for fights, if right. not longer, right? Like, Oh, yeah. So, I mean, come on. <laughs> that's what's an ad. That's, that's insane. Yeah, it's unheard of now. You're never going to see a, a guy. I mean, maybe like the journeymen on the low, the low guys who are trying to work their way up might do that, but not a guy who is contending for the heavyweight championship of the world. Yeah, it's, it's wild. On November 22nd, 1986, Mike Tyson became the youngest heavyweight champion in the history of boxing by defeating Trevor Burbick in the second round by TKO. By winning this fight, Mike Tyson became the World Boxing Council champion, otherwise known as the WBC. In boxing at this time, there were still two other heavyweight titles in contention, the IBF and the WBA. Tyson's first fight of 1987, he defeated James Smith for the WBA heavyweight title. So Tyson retains the WBC title and wins the WBA title. He retains both belts by defeating Pinklin Thomas. And on August 1st, 1987, Mike became the IBF heavyweight champion of the world, defeating Tony Tucker. Now, Tucker won the IBF title in 1987 because it was, and it was vacant. So here's a good hypothetical, right? All right. So Buster Douglas would have beat Tony Tucker in 1987. Buster Douglas would have been the IBF champ. And boxing history could have been completely different. Because if Douglas defeats Tucker in 87, Mike more likely would have faced Buster Douglas much sooner rather than so, 1990. What, so how did that work out? I mean, wasn't Tucker, wasn't Douglas like a contender for a while? And then... Yeah. So in 87, the IBF title is vacant. Well, so I believe Tucker well, who had the title. And so It was it was that's the thing. The title was vacant, so it was Tucker versus Douglas. So whoever won that match was why the was IBF it vacant? Champ. Is my question. That's like I said. It's a whole rabbit hole you're gonna have to go down because it's, to a casual boxing fan, it's even confusing. To someone who doesn't know sports, it's like you have three different federations of boxing, and then guys vacate titles because they don't defend them properly, or it's yeah, it's a lot going. A lot of politics is what you're so, saying with these divisions and these separate. Okay. Yeah. So right. So so yeah. basically, there yeah. was so, nobody in that division that could even hold the title, so they didn't even have a, essentially a title for that specific. Yeah. So the the IBF heavyweight title was vacant. So it must have been that Tucker and Douglas were the number one and two contenders right. for the title because they're always ranked. Yeah. Um. So whoever won that match was the IBF champ. So Tucker ended up beating Buster Douglas in '87. So then Tyson faced Tucker. I think it was like '88. But if Buster Douglas would have won, they wouldn't have. They would have faced each other probably much sooner sure. than 1990. Yeah. When, when Buster wasn't uh, as an ex, as an experienced a fighter. Yeah. yeah. Right. So who knows how that could have you know turned sure. out differently? And uh, Tyson whooped on Tucker too, didn't he? Tucker right. was talking all that shit, and then 
and then Tyson came in and whooped on him. Right. So it's like Tyson was in the zone at that point. Like no one, he was unstoppable. Yeah. So it's like, yeah. So no one would have remembered Buster Douglas if he would have won in '87, which is kind of weird to think about. Sure. But one guy in particular saw one of Mike's fights and was impressed by his power and skill. That guy, Minoru Arekawa, the president of Nintendo of America, who prompted Nintendo to include Mike in their upcoming video game Punch Out. You had Punch Out, right, Carlos? Oh yeah. Uh. What year did that come out, Dave? That was, was that eighty. Was that was in the eighties though? It was eighty-seven. Yeah, because he was already the he was the champ. He won the title in eighty-six, right? And then right, he's on top of the world. And they yeah, were... President Nintendo goes to a fight. It's like let's put this guy in our video game. Okay, that's great. Yeah, Punch Out, originally titled Mike Tyson's Punch Out, was released by Nintendo for the Nintendo Entertainment System in North America on. October 18th, 1987. Punch-Out! features a boxer known as Little Mac fighting his way up through the ranks of the World Video Boxing Association. After facing a series of colorful, fictional opponents, the goal is to win a final dream fight against Mike Tyson. I gotta admit, I kind of struggled with this game. I couldn't get past Great Tiger. I mean, once you oh, have a... Oh, man. Sandman was really hard too, dude. Right. I mean, once you have a boxer that can teleport, throw off a kid. <laughs> yeah. Well, dude, once you got to Tyson, oh my god, it was uh, it was almost impossible. Right. Like, uh, I mean, I never got to him. I never got uh, to him. But either. I've no. I've seen people beat him, and I'm like, what the hell? This is ridiculous. Because you have to time it out just right. I mean, you absolutely yeah. have to time everything out perfectly. The dodging and the punching. Yeah, it's that's wild. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, that was a fun one though, man. That game was hard. It really like, was. You know, levels really progressively got you know harder as you went along in, in Little Max's career. Yeah, you can check out YouTube videos of like people whooping you know on every on all those characters, which is pretty fun to, to see. But mm-hmm. man, when like mm-hmm. we were when we were kids playing those games, holy shit, was that hard? <laughs> it really was. Yeah, that's like that's remember how hard that game is. It really was. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So right now we're at the point where he's whooped on Tucker. He's whooped on everybody that he can possibly face, right? Like Right, yeah. So then, yeah, he beats Larry Holmes, gets his revenge for Muhammad Ali. He defeats Tony yeah. Tubbs. Then he finds himself facing Michael Spinks, who was the undisputed light heavyweight champ from 83 to 85. Now, this match against Spinks would not only be for the three heavyweight titles, but it would also be for the ring heavyweight title as well. Spinks had held the IBF and the ring championship since 1985 and lost the IBF title to Larry Holmes. Now, the result of the match, Mike knocks out Spinks in the first round. Now, Mike is now the undisputed heavyweight champion of the world, holding the WBC, WBA, IBF, and the ring titles. Now, his next two fights are against Frank Bruno and Carl The Truth Williams, winning by TKO for both. I need to mention that uh, during this time that Mike got married and then divorced to actress Robin Givens. Dang, that happened during that time. I didn't know that that was like all at the same time that that was happening. Well, I mean, I I kind of did. But right, because you're not. How you're, long were they dating? Like, you know how how you know long I mean? that marriage lasted? From February seventh, nineteen eighty eight, until February fourteenth, nineteen eighty nine. One year and one week they were married. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Robin Gibbons was famous back then for her role in the TV show Head of the Class. 
Even during their divorce proceedings, they were still seeing each other from time to time. Well, one time Mike went over to Robin's house. Well, Robin wasn't home, so Mike decided to wait for her. She pulls up a short time later with someone, someone with long blonde hair. At first, Mike thinks it's one of Robin's model friends, but no, it's a dude. Do you happen to know who that dude was? I'll give you a few hints. It was Brad Pitt. It was Brad Pitt. Yeah, yeah no, I know the story. That's story, dude. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's too good. So yeah. <laughs> so yeah, this is an awkward situation. Yeah, yeah. So Mike and Robin are divorced, but they're still hooking up. But they're getting divorced for a myriad of reasons because one of those reasons being how volatile their relationship was. Luckily for Brad Pitt, he wasn't trying to get with Robin, but was a castmate of Robin's on the TV show Head of the Class, and they were going over Robin's house to rehearse lines. Now, Brad Pitt isn't famous at this time. He's just another working actor looking for his big break. He's also stoned out of his gourd, as Mike would recall in his autobiography. Yeah, I mean, I don't think he was shy about the fact that he used to smoke Halloween back then, you know? Right, so his character in True Romance smoking a bong wasn't too far of a stretch for him as an actor. Brad Pitt, being the consummate professional and all-around good guy, made sure to smooth the situation over and be completely honest. He's like, Michael, please, please don't hit me. We're here to rehearse lines. She was talking about you the whole time, I swear. So thankfully for Brad Pitt and millions of moviegoers, Mike Tyson did not punch Brad Pitt in that beautiful face of his. Mike was cool about it and understood the situation. So on to the fight! The Mike Tyson-Buster Douglas fight took place on February 11th, 1990 at the Tokyo Dome in Tokyo, Japan. The match was carried by HBO in the United States and was also shown in Japan, Brazil, Puerto Rico, Thailand, and the United Kingdom. The stadium was set up for a capacity crowd of 63,000, but didn't draw nearly close to that amount. I couldn't find an attendance figure, but it was like half to two-thirds. Really? It really was. It didn't help that much that the match was at 9 a.m. in Tokyo, so it could be carried live in primetime in the United States. Oh, yeah. I was, so why did they do it in Tokyo? They just they couldn't find a venue in the States to do it that was because of Mike's legal troubles, or was it because they just didn't? Because, I mean, how did they not have that show? Like at, you know, somewhere in, in the States at that time. I think is because of the challenger. Everyone just thought it was just another fight because Evander Holyfield was one of the number one contenders and everyone wanted to see Tyson fight Holyfield. So this Buster Douglas Tyson match wasn't a big draw. So everyone was just kind of not interested. So, I guess so it was kind of ultimately a setup match for Holyfield. Holyfield was sitting ringside in that match. So yeah, I mean they wanted yeah. they He was he was yeah, doing his homework. Right. Like any good fighter would. Yeah, he was sitting ringside and he, Holyfield has that look like he'd rather be somewhere else. He'd rather be in the ring. That's where right. he'd rather be. Right. Yeah. Yeah, no. I mean, at the time too, I believe like Tyson he didn't have his normal trainers. Is that correct? Or something like that? Like his training regimen was really not the same after Cus died, right? So right. he yeah. went through a number of different trainers and, uh, and then, I think And then Don King came along and that really changed things for Mike. Yeah. He relied so much on Cus. I don't think it's you know, I don't think we can understate how important he was to Mike's training and his development as a fighter. 
So, um, you know, this, this, this kind of was like a perfect storm of events that were, that was leading up to Buster Douglas beating him was a 42 to one dog. 42 to one. And I don't even know which casino that was. They were, the HBO was saying that Vegas didn't even put any odds up. It was, so it was either a casino in Europe or somewhere else in, or in Japan um, yeah. But yeah, Vegas yeah. didn't even put up any odds for it. Yeah, because nobody expected that to happen, dude. Nobody, nobody, except yeah, the Buster Douglas right. camp was the only camp that. That was the only one. Yep. Even oh, including yeah. HBO boxing analyst Larry Merchant and Jim Lampley expected another ninety-second annihilation by Tyson. Yeah. And um, Ed Schuyler of the Associated Press, when asked by a Japanese customs official how long he expected to be working in Japan, he said, oh, about 90 seconds. Yeah. Shock the world, dude. And so instead of discussing Douglas's chances against Tyson, Larry Merchant and Jim Lampley compared their pets. During, like, the pregame? Uh, or the yeah. pre-fight, rather? <laughs> yeah, you know. And, uh, Mike Tyson had a white pit bull named Duran, named after his idol, Roberto Duran, while Buster Douglas had a beagle named Shakespeare. Did they put up like the side by side with the weights and They uh, didn't put up the pictures. Uh, I was a little disappointed. I mean nowadays you would have the pictures, been. you would have a video of the dog doing something cute. No, right. they didn't do that. They didn't do that. They would have their own Instagram page for sure. Oh, right. I mean <laughs> Yeah. But yeah, dude, uh I mean Ty- could you imagine if that was around during like that era, dude, Tyson's with his tigers and just flexing on the gram. Buster Douglas had a 29 and 4 and 1 record, whereas Mike was 37 and 0, with the entire world thinking that Mike Tyson was going to win the fight handily. Even Mike thought that way because he was out partying with a pop star the night before. Can you take a guess as who Mike was hanging out with? I'll give you a couple hints. Okay. He he would become Uh, just. Hold on. Let me let me me read you the full hint, and then you can come up with your own guess. He would become just as famous for who he was married to. I'd love to talk about her, but it's my prerogative to talk about him right now. Oh, Bobby Brown. Bobby Brown! Oh, man. Well, that makes a lot of sense, then. That didn't help his training. No. Bobby Brown was doing some shows in Osaka. And Mike was partying with Bobby Brown in Brown's hotel suite the night before the fight. Now, keep in mind, the match is at 9 a.m. Now, even Bobby Brown was suggesting to Mike that he go to bed. Wow. And I didn't Mike's know this response. part of that. Uh, <laughs> right. right. Even Bobby Brown's like, and he's like, Bobby, just watch. Just, Bobby, just watch me. It's Buster Douglas. The fight will be over in three rounds if I allow him to go three rounds. Mike would later admit that he had been doing way too much partying and not nearly enough training in the weeks leading up to the fight, almost as if he wanted to lose to relieve the constant pressure on him. Um, Buster Douglas, on the other hand, trained hard and also had extra motivation before the fight. 23 days before the match, Buster Douglas' mother, Lula, died unexpectedly at the age of 46. Douglas was determined to win the fight for her as she, just a short time before her death, was bragging to her friends that Buster was going to beat Mike Tyson. Buster Douglas was not afraid of Mike going into the fight. Douglas displayed a lot of spring in his step 
and let his punches fly whenever he saw the opportunity to attack Tyson. Buster Douglas used his quick and accurate jab to prevent Tyson from getting inside where Mike was most dangerous. Buster Douglas having the height advantage being 6'4", whereas Mike Tyson being 5'10 and a half. Yeah, massive reach difference. Yeah, Buster Douglas has an 83 reach versus Mike's 71. Yeah, huge difference. So Buster Douglas definitely took advantage of he his height it. and it, yeah, his reach. All day. Just jamming. He kept kept Mike Mike at bay, and then yeah, when um, when Mike, and Mike, let's be honest, Mike was hung over. Like he was over as hell, <laughs> if yeah. not still high, like still drunk and yeah, just wasted. So when Tyson yeah. tried to get inside, Douglas tied him up, moved away, or would immediately hit Tyson with multiple punches as Tyson came within range. Early on, Buster Douglas was more agile than Tyson and finished the second round with an uppercut to Tyson's chin. Seeming to regain his form, Mike Tyson landed a punishing left to the body that had Buster Douglas look at him in his corner. After an ineffective third round, Tyson cornerman Jay Bright screamed at Tyson, Don't just stand there, look at him, you gotta work! Boxer Sugar Ray Leonard was ringside doing commentary for HBO and pointed out that Tyson was having one of those occasional days in the ring where you just don't have it. Things just don't click in. Yeah, and being hungover doesn't help either. No, it sure, certainly doesn't, but, you know. Mike's manager and promoter, Don King, was sitting ringside. I don't know if you got a chance to watch the fight. Uh, I remember he, seeing that, like, he was in a celebratory mood after the fight. as if, like, Okay, so during the fight, Don King was sitting next to Donald Trump. Yeah, yeah. Donald Trump hosted four of... Mike's previous pro fights. I mean, I was gonna say like he fought at Trump Casino a bunch. Right. You can't miss Trump because every time there's a wide shot of the fight, you see both hairs, Don King and Trump. Yeah. Two men who are infamous for their hair are sitting front row center for this fight. You can't miss them. So anyway, back to the fight. Douglas yeah. would still dominate the middle rounds, although Tyson managed to land a few of his signature uppercuts. Tyson was wobbled by a chopping right during the fifth round. Soon, Mike's left eye began to swell from Douglas's right jabs, preventing him from seeing his punches that well. Now, Mike's in trouble, and it's only going to get worse for him. Mike Tyson's cornermen forgot to bring some equipment. They forgot to bring ice packs and an end swell. For those of you who don't know, an end swell is a small piece of metal with a handle. It is typically kept on ice and used to cool the area of a bruise or cut by applying direct pressure to decrease the blood flow of the area and keep the swelling down. Well, they didn't yeah, have that. Uh... That's, that's the problem. <laughs> they weren't expecting for Mike to get punched in the face. That was the thing. You know, they were right. just, like, so what do they use thing. instead? They used a rubber glove filled with ice water. You had to improvise, you know. He had to use yeah. around you, so that's all they had. So yeah. they went with it, and then yeah. Yeah, you can see if you look at some of those videos, you see like uh, him in the corner during the, in between the rounds with like that that glove, like filled with water. They're putting it up to his head, and it's like, like what is that? I they... <laughs> you know what I mean? You're like, what is, is this? Amateur rubber... hour? Are <laughs> 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 they just using a rubber glove filled with water to? Mike's face Very ill prepared. Yeah, someone screwed up big time. 
Yeah. It's it just it almost seemed as though honestly like it seemed like I don't know they just set it up as if they didn't need to come to work that day. You know what I mean? Like it was just like ah we're just gonna we you know it's like when you see NBA players do that you know they take nights off. That's you know they call it and it's just it's so disappointing to see because I know that my, I'm not implying at all that Mike Tyson did that or people in his camp did that but man did uh, it was like the untimely unfortunate circle of events that preceded uh, all of this so yeah I mean Mike just walked into it thinking he was gonna win no matter what Ultimately, didn't make a yeah, difference if he partied or went out or trained he just thought he was gonna win no matter what and that's and how old is he at this point. I mean, he's 23. 23. Yeah. 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 I'll do dumb stuff when we're 23. I heard that. So what leads up to, so what leads up to after the fifth round, right? Because like, that's when fighters are people, or that's when people are like worried, right? People are worried a little bit. But I would say fights progressing in the eighth round, Douglas dominated until the last few seconds. HBO, Larry Merchant points out that Douglas is asking of Tyson some questions he hasn't been asked for. So in the last few rounds of the fight, you have to come back and win it. So Tyson's not used to coming back and winning. He's used to winning in the first few rounds, you know. Mm-hmm. So within the last 10 seconds of the eighth round, Tyson landed a big right uppercut that sent Douglas to the canvas. Although the knockdown timekeeper began when Douglas's backside touched the ring's surface, the referee was said to have started his own count behind two beats. So here was a controversy that they tried to bring up. So the Don King, of course, after the fight, protested this specific count. Douglas rose as the referee signaled nine, but the bell ended the round. But the referee's count was valid. Supposedly, the count was supposed to start at a certain time, but the referee is the ultimate authority in the ring. Well, so in that regards, I don't know what the rules are for boxing, but in, in terms of uh, knockdown, if the ref doesn't start counting until the back touches the mat, is that the rule? They're right. not supposed to start counting, right? Until the back hits the back. Right, because if you look, Douglas gets knocked down, and then the ref goes over him when he's down so he, it, i mean it the legit. thing is it does it's like you, you gotta give the guy you know what i mean like a, a a second to react to what's happening in front of him right so right. it's just the natural part of refereeing sports it's just like you gotta you know dave you're wearing the rough shirt you know it's true for those of you that can't uh can't, can't the get the they're not out on the visual yeah. right now dave i'm wearing is, a referee shirt but i wouldn't want to be a referee in any I would, yeah. No, it's a cool shirt. Anyway, a but tough I, job, man. I would never want to be a referee. No way. <laughs> it's a tough job, dude. You see these parents at soccer yelling at these soccer right. games at kids. They get so into it. Yeah. So Douglas was able to fight off the attack and close Tyson's eye completely. Both men traded punches before Douglas connected on a four-punch combination that staggered Tyson back to the ropes. Was Tyson hurt along the ropes? Douglas closed in and unleashed a four-punch attack, trying to knock Tyson out. Buster Douglas continued to land hard punches until the round was over. In the 10th round, Tyson pushed forward, but he was still seriously hurting from the accumulation of punishment he had absorbed throughout the match. Now remember at this point, Mike can pretty much only see out of one eye. And as Mike advanced, Douglas gave him a few jabs before landing an uppercut that snapped Tyson's head upward, stopping him in his tracks. As he came back, Douglas immediately followed with four punches to the head, 
knocking Tyson down for the first time in his career. It looked like something out of a movie, seriously, when it happened. Real, in real yeah. Like, that, and that last punch where he, he connects and it just, like, just a nail in the coffin, you know? Yeah, and uh, like that legend, I mean, it's just such an iconic shot of Mike Tyson reaching for his mouthpiece. Right. right? And he's uh, trying to grab his mouthpiece, knowing that, like, he thinking that he still has more time than he does, right? He's like, mm-hmm. I'm just going to get mm-hmm. my mouthpiece and put it in real quick, and I'm right. good. And then he, he barely gets to the 10 count, and then you see them just, right. like, I got you, Mike. Like, <laughs> I got yeah. you, and that was the yeah. I was just mentioned like that's the lasting image of this fight is Mike fumbling for his mouthpiece because Mike's mentality was okay. Well, I can't fight without my mouthpiece, so I got to put my mouthpiece in before I do anything else. But then, as you could see, he's got he's got the mouthpiece sticking on one end of his mouth with the other piece of the mouthpiece hanging out, so it's not even Steph, in. Steph Curry and you know before Steph Curry. Yeah, so then by the time he's able to stumble up, the count's already ten. The ref's like, "Yep, we're done, Mike. Fight's over." Yeah. Yeah, dude, it was uh, unbelievable for the sporting world in general, not just boxing. It was like the biggest news that had happened in a long time. Mm-hmm. A stunning uh, upset. So after, the, yeah, so Mike Tyson was heavyweight champion for three years, two months, and twenty days. Mike Tyson's manager Don King immediately protested the results of the match because of the eighth round count that I mentioned earlier when Buster Douglas was knocked down. The WBA and WBC initially agreed and suspended recognition of Buster Douglas as champion, although the IBF immediately accepted that the result was valid. After a public outcry and boxing commissions around the world demanding that they acknowledge Douglas as the champion, the protest was withdrawn and Buster Douglas's win was recognized four days after the fight. In an HBO studio interview with Larry Merchant the following week, Douglas stated the protest and post-fight confusion ruined what should have been the best time of his life. Well, I mean, Don King was involved in the promotion of the fight, right? So. Yeah, so Don King's going to do Don King things. Yeah, it was, I mean, uh, they've... they've... Had like numerous documentaries and interviews and things about it like that. Yeah, it doesn't seem stunned like that Mike lost. Team. They were like they didn't know how to yeah. compute that information that Mike Tyson lost a boxing match. Yeah, but it was just it was really interesting too how quickly those people turned on him once he was no longer the champ. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So how much money do you think Mike made from the fight? Uh, I don't know because they were. Purses weren't that huge. They were doing pay-per-views back then, right? So This one was on HBO, but I believe Tyson had an exclusive with HBO during this time. I mean, I would have to guess like $10 million. Six? Six million. Six? Yeah, and Buster Douglas, yeah. you want to take a guess how much he made? Did he make a cool mill or a two mill? 1.3. Yeah. Yeah, yeah he, got, he made a cool mill out of this fight. Oh, he did all right for himself, and... Do you know where Mike Tyson was supposed to be two weeks after this fight? He was supposed to be at the Joe Louis Arena in Detroit, refereeing the WWF title match between Hulk Hogan and Macho Man Randy Savage at the main event. Did you know that? I did not. That is fascinating. What? Now here's where it gets interesting. Tyson never made it to Detroit, thus changing the course of WWE history. Buster Douglas did it instead. It's okay. In 1988, there were rumors of a possible wrestling match. 
Okay. In the three months before the Tyson-Douglas match, Don King and Vince McMahon of the WWF were working on a possible wrestling match between Mike Tyson and Hulk Hogan. No way. What? (laughs) So the possible scenario was to unfold on February 23rd at the main event when Tyson was supposed to serve as a guest referee in the Hogan-Macho Man match. Okay, so Tyson was to somehow interfere, allowing Savage to win, thus setting up a feud between Hulk Hogan and Mike Tyson, culminating in a pay-per-view extravaganza that would have expected to generate over $100 million. Dude, Could you imagine is- a wrestling match between Mike Tyson and... And Hulk Hogan in 1990 would have been one of the most watched pay-per-views of all time. Yeah. Oh, my. Dude, that is insane. I did not know any of that. That's cool. Is that Was that from uh, Undisputed? That? No, that, that I kind of had to did you go find that? For, I, I went further down the rabbit hole. I went down the rabbit hole for that one. And, you know, cause wow. I, I knew Buster Douglas. I know Mike Tyson was supposed to do a WWF thing, and then Buster Douglas took his place instead. And then I went down the rabbit hole. I was like, "Oh, oh, Vince had this whole this whole big event planned, as he does. Sure. You know how Vince Vince is always three st- steps ahead, and he he plans things, these plot lines. You know, but this this and this and have to happen. But Tyson lost, yeah, and uh, but it, instead Buster Douglas was the referee at the main event that night. And it was one of, yeah. So Vince McMahon planned for Tyson to win and have one of the most memorable Saturday night main events the WWF ever had. Instead, it was one of the most underwhelming shows in the company's history. The Saturday night main event would never be the same ever again. Really? That's, I remember watching Saturday night main event as a kid and being like just so jacked to watch wrestling on Saturday night, you know? And, but I remember it decided to took a turn for the worse. And that's when I mean, it started. Well, so when did they stop doing Saturday Night Event? Do you remember? That I'm not sure. Um, because, yeah, we'll chronicle more on that in our next episode uh, when we chronicle WrestleMania six. I mean, honestly, I feel like we're getting to a point now where I'm like, I'm trying to predict what the next episode's going to be. So right. glad we're on the same page, man. Let's, let's do some wrestling. The 1988 arcade game Final Blow was released as James Buster Douglas Knockout Boxing for the Sega Master and Sega Genesis. Sega released that game to compete with Mike Tyson's Punch-Out. I never played the Buster Douglas game for Sega Genesis, did you? No, I didn't know that there was one. Yeah, I don't remember that. <laughs> I also was a Super Nintendo guy growing up. Ah, uh, so. see, yeah, I didn't have Super Nintendo. I was, I did Sega <clears throat> Genesis. Uh, okay. All right, all right, yeah. all right, okay. Yeah, um, but uh, interesting, I didn't know, yeah, interesting that they made a game. Yeah, yeah. Buster Douglas, unfortunately, didn't hold on to the title for nearly as long as Mike did. On October 25th, 1990, Buster Douglas lost in his next match against... Evander Holyfield. Evander Holyfield, that's right. But more on Holyfield next season when we talk about his fight with George Foreman. Buster Douglas lost his titles to Evander Holyfield, fought in a few more fights, and retired in 1999. And Mike Tyson, on the other hand, we'll be talking about some more just a little bit later on. Now, it's time for a segment we'd like to call In the World That Week. So, in world news, on February 11th, the same day as the fight, Nelson Mandela is released from Victor Verster Prison in Cape Town, South Africa, after being imprisoned for 27 years. 
He would then be elected the first president of South Africa in 1994. On February 13th, an agreement is reached for a two-stage plan to reunite Germany. February 14th, the pale blue dot photograph of Earth is sent back from Voyager 1, a space probe that took a picture of Earth from 6 billion kilometers away. The picture really puts things into perspective, doesn't it? You know, it does. And, and like the timing of that, February 14th, was it? Yeah, February 14th, 1990. Coincidentally on Valentine's Day, or was that part of the mission? I wonder. Um, not quite sure. I mean, that could have been good timing, or that's when the day that NASA decided to release the photo. I'm not sure. Yeah. But... Yeah, but uh, love. Yeah, that's a, that's, a good, that's a good nugget. Yeah, yeah, right. Because, yeah, the, that's like an iconic uh, shot of Earth that didn't even exist up until that point. Yeah. In U.S. news that month, smoking is banned on all cross-country flights in the United States. What? That that didn't happen until 1990? I thought it would be earlier, like the 80s. But yeah, I didn't think it was to yeah. go away until 1990 to ban smoking on flights. Wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The more you know. The number one song in America that week? I'll give you a couple hints. She was a Laker girl, and the music video features her with an animated character, which was the style at the time. Oh, man, forever your girl. Paul Abdul? Paul Abdul, Opposites Attract. But Opposites Attract was his song, right? Yeah, yeah, Opposites Attract, yeah. Um, yeah, that video, was, that video was something else at the time. They right. didn't have like animated videos like that. You know, It was pretty revolutionary. Yeah, I think it was after Who Framed Roger Rabbit came out, that, that started yeah. the trend of putting blending uh, live action animation together. Yeah, that video's dope. Yeah. Still is. See, the number one movie at the box office? It's one of the generic sounding uh, Steven Seagal movies. It's only a second film. Steven Seagal's second movie. That's got one of the, you know, those generic titles. Under Siege? Got. I don't know what should. No. Oh, wait, hang on. Hey, no, no, no. What, yeah, it's not Under film? Siege. Yeah, not, so, it's only a second movie. So, yeah, this is it's it, not okay. Under Siege. This is, yeah. It's, so he had, because he did do a string of like three named titled films for a minute there. And this is one of those three named titles. So, License to Kill? Close. Hard to kill. Hard to kill. Man, <laughs> it was one of the two. Yeah. Dude, those movies are so uh, vintage 90s, dude. Like the jeans and like the things that are cool now. Like go back to that movie. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah, the second movie and it uh, took in 9.2 million in its opening weekend. One of the popular nonfiction books at the time was All I Really Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten by Robert Fulcom. You remember that book? Uh, yeah, vaguely. It's like yeah. it teaches you a bunch of little life lessons. Life lessons, be good to each other, clean up after yourself, you know, all that simple stuff. Yeah. The NBA All-Star Game was also on the same day as the fight. The East beat the West 130-113, to with Magic Johnson being the game's MVP. So there you have it. The Mike Tyson-Buster Douglas fight will go down as the biggest upset in boxing history, if not one of the biggest upsets in all of sports history a conclusion no one anticipated now before we go we have to talk a little bit more about mike because he was in the news this week yeah man the timing of this episode yeah oh man it's, it's crazy i didn't know until you sent me that text i was like what I'm like 
We're doing a episode about Mike this week. This is wild. I know, because we had filmed and shot, you know, recorded the last episode before any of this happened. So it was kind of wild that, uh, you know, this is the world we live in where where people can can just approach uh, someone like Mike Tyson and just on an airplane, no less, right? And right. Just harass him. So Mike Tyson yeah. was on a plane and he was being harassed by a passenger behind him. The passenger kept on bothering Mike to the point where it got physical. Sources close to Mike claim that the man was intoxicated and wouldn't stop provoking the boxer in his seat. The incident all went down as Tyson was scheduled to fly out of San Francisco International to Florida. A witness on the plane says he and his friends were boarding Tyson's flight. The boxing legend was initially cool with them and the other passengers. Eventually, Tyson had enough this guy talking behind in his ear and told him to chill. When the guy didn't and threw a water bottle at Mike, that's when Mike started to throw several punches at the man's face. According to another passenger, the man was seen before the flight at an airport bar where he was loud and quarrelsome. Did you watch the video, Dave? I did. I did, did watch the whole video. I mean, yeah. there's there's like video footage of passengers on the plane, like right in the you know the aisle across from him, and you can clearly see that this guy's not only intoxicated and something, but he's just harassing Mike. And you don't see this part where he throws the water bottle. I, I mean, I didn't see that part. But, right. Yeah. You know, it's it's one of those things that the guy that's even videotaping is like, yo, chill out, man. Like this guy's wilding. You're wilding right now. And you you have no idea who you're wilding. Like that is Mike Tyson, bro. The guy has a video game. You know what I mean? Like, why would you do that? Yep. Well, the man... Melvin Townsend III has an extensive criminal record. He's been convicted of fraud, grand theft, burglary, possession of controlled substances, and trafficking in stolen property. Both men got off the plane and were met by cops. Townsend said he didn't want to press charges, and they were both free to go. Tyson, so Tyson didn't press charges? No charges pressed, free to go, and Mike was well, able to go on about his way. He, yeah, I mean, he learned his lesson, I hope. Yeah. Just don't, just don't, don't do that. Yeah. This story reminded me of a time when another guy was messing around with Mike. That guy? Again, Bobby Brown. Now, Bobby Brown recalls in his autobiography, Every Little Step, My Story, the one time he screwed around with Mike. Now, here's what Bobby Brown had to say. So one time we were working out together doing some sparring. Mike was letting me hit him, but I slipped up and hit Mike in the face with a right cross with my bare fist. Suddenly, all motion stopped. Mike looked at me like I was crazy. Bobby, why do you hit me so hard? What's wrong with you? I will hurt you, Bobby. <laughs> Bobby Brown then goes on. <laughs> but I was still delusional, so I didn't take him seriously. Yeah, whatever, I said all cocky. You just getting slow. Yeah, that's right. I was arrogantly mouthing off to the man many consider the greatest, <laughs> scariest fighter of all time. Not smart. <laughs> Now here's what happened next. That's a very, that just sounds like something that's so Bobby Brown. So Bobby saying that Mike crouched down, came toward me, and boom, boom, boom. He hit my ribs on my left side with rapid succession. I thought I was going to stop breathing. I couldn't believe how much it hurt. I dropped on the floor and curled into a fetal position. And then Mike says, see, Bobby, I told you to stop playing. Yeah. It's like, I didn't want to do this. You made me. It's like what, you know. Like, Mike could have hit Bobby Brown harder for toying with him, but all Mike needed to do was just three quick jabs, and Bobby got the message loud and clear. 
Just to the ribs, too. He didn't even, just like, hit pop, him in pop, the pop. face. He just, yeah. like, you yeah. know what I mean? Just give you some, some shots, right. of, uh, some body shots. Right. Bobby's famous. His face is a commodity. And Mike's a friend. <laughs> he, but he made sure to stop playing, Bobby. Don't play with me, Bobby. <laughs> Don't play, Bobby. Uh, well, that's a fun story. Yeah. Yeah, so that wraps it up for uh, another episode. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Sports in the 90s. Matt, Dave, what an episode, dude. Yeah. No, it's good stuff, man. Uh, Next episode, we'll be talking about WrestleMania 6. So stay tuned for that. It's going to be good stuff. Um, Hogan versus Warrior and the Ultimate Challenge. So I'm excited to talk about that. Heck yeah, brother. Uh, I'm excited for that one, too, because uh, that WrestleMania 6 was legendary. I remember Ultimate Warrior was probably, you know, he was starting to become one of my favorite wrestlers. And, of course, we didn't like Hulk Hogan as a kid, so it was the ultimate just clash of the titans. And, yeah, man, we used to watch, if for those of you that we didn't mention, we were huge wrestling fans growing up. That was another thing that Dave and I shared in common. So, yeah, this WrestleMania one's going to be fun, dude. Yeah. And uh, I just had to switch hats real quick, pay homage to Mr. Rogers. And uh, this is my way of paying homage. Just got to switch the cap every episode for those of you who can't see. I just went from a Blackhawks cap to Chicago Bulls 1998 championship, six titles hat. Uh, original starter, folks. Have to give my, my Bulls some love. We are hurting a little bit in this series against the Bucks. Giannis is a absolute monster. Bucks are good. Um, so, yeah, so good. Bucks are Dude, that guy's a beast. So let's hope that uh, next time we do this, Bulls will still be in the playoffs. Yeah. Let's go see you ride, baby. Cool, man. Yeah, it's been real, brother. Uh, but yeah. Yeah, dude. Always a pleasure, my friend. Cool. Uh, so, yeah. I'll talk to you uh, next time, my man. Yeah, this is Dave Smith and Carlos Vega reminding you to think when you drink and to reduce, reuse, recycle. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Sports in the 90s. They get scared when I pull my mic.